0: A wonderful story um, from the book of Judges, the book that we're now in, in a series that will um, last until we're done, a series that's going to have a lot of interesting stories in it, and this is one of them. And I especially, I'm sure you do too, like stories that have twists and turns in them, unexpected ones, right? Right? If everything's to be expected, it's hard to stay interested. But if the story takes unusual turns, it's fascinating. And I think this one does. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite movies is called The Usual Suspects, um, which is the motivation for my title, Usual Suspects, Unexpected Heroes. You remember The Usual Suspects? Some of you do. Isn't that a great movie? They think they got everybody lined up, and Kevin Spacey, it it doesn't look like he could be the guy, and he turns out to be the guy. Oh, I just blew the punchline if, in fact, you're going to watch it. It's an awesome movie. This story is not quite like that, but it has things that are normal or usual, right? Here's the normal or the usual. In the book of Judges, this always happens. The people of God walk away from God. They start worshiping other gods, and God says, okay, have it your way. I think I'll just check out, if you don't mind. See what you can do about handling your own affairs. That's a an interpretation of what happened here. It says that God allowed the people to be oppressed by their enemies. The people of God were always oppressed by their enemies when they walked away from God and God said, okay, have it your way. That's the usual. That's the normal cycle in the book of Judges. What is unusual is the unexpected heroes in the story. God routinely delivers them, but he doesn't always deliver them with these kinds of people. There's basically several characters in the story that are important to the story. Two of them are not from Israel. One is Jabin. He's the king of the Canaanite nation that oppresses the people. That's the king. That's all you hear about Jabin. He's just the king. Then he has a commander, a general, called Sisera. Sisera commands this huge army that could oppress Israel at any point. Then enter into this story a woman called Deborah. Deborah is named a prophetess and a judge for the people of Israel. See, that's interesting enough. That's already unexpected. This is a patriarchal society. Women don't do these kinds of things, but Deborah did. Then you have Barak. Beric is this unnamed hero. What I mean by unnamed is not that we don't know his name, but that we don't know much about him. The narrator just gives us his name. He just appears sort of out of nowhere. And then we have this person who's really unknown. Her name is Jael the wife of a man named Heber. Now, with those characters in the story, the plot develops. Deborah is a judge and a prophet over Israel. Let's put it another way. Deborah is the leader of Israel. End of story. Some people try, in my opinion, to handle this text in what I believe is a rather manipulative way to suggest that Deborah was a judge but not really a judge, not quite like so-and-so, not a little... No. The plain sense of the text is this. Deborah was the judicial and spiritual leader of all of Israel. Period. That's the way the story reads. And that's unusual really unusual. To put it another way, Deborah stands in the tradition of Moses, the one who was the judge of all the people, who settled all their disputes, who handled their details, who had the wisdom of God for the people, and Moses, the prophet who got in a singular way a word from God in ways that other people did not and spoke on behalf of the people and had the authority to spiritually command the people. That was Deborah. And consistent with that tradition of prophet and judge, she calls or commands Barak. She gets a word from God, and the word is, I want Barak to lead an army against Sisera. So she calls Barak and says, God said it's time to go and defeat these people who oppress the nation of Israel. So Barak enters the story. Apparently, he's a military leader. But I say apparently because we don't really know that according to the text, except later he leads people in a military campaign. Well, we don't know him as a great general in Israel. We just know this man man named Barak is called by Deborah to do God's will, which is to lead the people in battle. Or to put it another way, he's not like Joshua. He doesn't have a long-standing reputation of routing the enemies of God. Not the way the narration reads, he's just called. We assume a military leader, I think a proper assumption... The narrator calls him seemingly out of nowhere. And when he's called, his immediate response, you'll recall from the reading of the text, is, Well, okay. I'll do it under one condition, Deborah, that you go with me. And it is implicit, I think, in Deborah's comment that she's criticizing his faith. She doesn't say it in so many words. She just says, well, all right, but because of the way you have approached this, because of the kind of yes you've given me, a woman will get the credit for this battle. There's something else interesting about Barak. In the text, he doesn't initiate anything. He's a rather passive figure. He's somewhere not well known, according to the narrator, called by Deborah. And then, when called, it's as though he just stands and waits until Deborah says to him, It's time to go. Get your troops and go after them. It's Deborah who gives the command, it's Barak who follows. It's interesting, isn't it, when he says, I'll go, but not unless you go with me. Because we have to wonder, what does that mean? We're not really told what it means. We can only surmise. And um, one thing we might believe it to be is that Barak, well, he knows who the leader of Israel is. And he realizes that if he goes out and calls people to battle, they're really going to want to know Did the leader think it was a good idea? So perhaps, just perhaps, Barak is asking Deborah to be alongside him because she brings leadership authority that he didn't have. Or maybe this as well as that. He asked Deborah to be alongside him because he wants her spiritual, mystical, God-blessed presence. Deborah, I'll do this, but i got to have you there. You're the one who hears from God. You've got the spiritual blessing. Everybody knows you as the leader. But you got to be there or I'm not going. You know, there's a, a contemporary and ancient stories that are similar to this where leaders of nations um, rely Uh, sometimes heavily, sometimes almost surreptitiously on a spiritual leader, advisor. Remember the uh, famous story, classical story that turned into historical, turned into a movie, um, uh, Nicholas and Alexandra. Uh, Nicholas, the Tsar of Russia, Alexandra, his wife. And uh, Alexandra really leaned on, and vicariously through her, so did Nicholas, lean on a spiritual leader of questionable repute. Rasputin was his name. He apparently had healed uh, Alexandra's son. She relied on him heavily. She wanted him around. She wanted this kind of mystical presence there. You've heard those stories. As a matter of fact, we have uh, presidents who've been a lot like that. Uh, If you've ever read the biographies or autobiographies of presidents, you'll find that one of those uh, was Lyndon Baines Johnson. He He always wanted to have him a good Baptist preacher around. Billy Graham was one of them, but there were others. Uh, He was a Texas Baptist, and he wanted his preacher to be there. And it gave him, I guess, comfort. It gave him a spiritual presence. Um, Other times, you've heard about these stories that are a little bit more humorous. Billy Graham, when he first started out in his uh, evangelistic career, um, used to make friends and associate with people by golfing with them. As a matter of fact, after a while, he decided he couldn't golf anymore first he wasn't that good but second because everybody wanted him to golf and so he finally said forget it no more golfing that way I don't have to say no to anybody I just don't golf anymore but when he did golf earlier in his career he would golf with celebrities and Bob Hope the comedian joked that the reason he always liked to have Billy Graham on the course with him is because Billy Graham was lightning insurance yeah if the preacher's there the lightning won't strike I, I hear those stories, but I've never experienced them. Nobody's asked for my presence, so I just know it happens. And in this case, maybe that's what's going on. Maybe Barak is saying, i got to have you there, Deborah, because you got the presence of God with you, and I want your spiritual blessing. So she comes. But the end of the story, it's not about Deborah. It's not about Barak. It's about a little-known figure named Jail. The wife of Heber. Jail, someone that nobody knew. Jail, a housewife or a tent wife. Jail, on the lowest echelon of society. When Sisera is in retreat, he comes to her home. In that culture, to welcome someone into your home, is to welcome them to ultimate protection. If you were to come under their roof, they protected you like you were family. They fed you like you were family. Sisera is fleeing. Jael says, come into my tent. Implicit in the message, I'll protect you like family a beguiling woman she says to him these words my Lord come on in and don't be afraid I've got to wonder how she said it she knew exactly what she was about to do she lured him into the tent and I think it's fascinating maybe I read too much into the narrative He's running for his life. She invites him in. And as soon as he steps across the threshold of her tent, he becomes demanding. Woman, give me some water. I'm tired and exhausted. She says, not a problem. Lay down. Instead, she brings him milk. I would like to imagine warm milk. It says it was in a skin. She gives him milk, he's exhausted, and she covers him up like you would a child. Tucks him into bed, so to speak, and he falls fast asleep. I should tell you this about jail and any other woman in that culture. They knew their tents. They knew their hammers. They knew their pegs because for the most part, they put the tent up. They were the rulers of the house. So while he slept, she picked up a tent peg with a hammer and I like to believe skillfully with one slam of the hammer drove it straight through his temple and into the ground. Yeah, the story's got punch at the end, doesn't it? It's remarkable. Sisera's dead. The greatest enemy of God's people is dead at the hands of a woman. That is humiliating for a great general. That's an incredible story. Because when you first heard the story, you thought to yourself, when Deborah says, okay, I'll go with you, but a woman's going to get the credit. What did you think? Well, Deborah will get the credit. That's not what it was about at all. It was about an unnamed person up till that point named Jael who gets the credit. God works, as Shakespeare once said, in strange and mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. Every story that's ancient, and these scriptures has a contemporary message. What are the contemporary applications from this particular story? I don't think the ones that I'm going to list are that stunning. You probably could think of them yourself. But the first thing I think of from this story for today is this. We, as a people in community, Need to listen for the word of the God, word of God, in the mouth of another. See, that's what Barak did. He listened for the word of God in the mouth of another. There's something so beautiful and profound about that in community, because my heart is deceptive. I'm so full of pride that I frequently can't hear clearly, objectively, the Word of God, and God uses another to speak His Word into my life. I'm not suggesting I can't hear from God on my own, but I will be so critical as to suggest That in our contemporary evangelical culture, we have tilted far too much in the direction of me and my God and my Bible hearing a revelation straight from God for me. I'm sorry, my friends, but do you realize how completely egotistical it is when that's only the way we hear from God? The community of faith has consistently spoken to us through others, It's all over Scripture, and it ought to be true today. So we ought to be careful to listen for the Word of God in another. I've read before a passage from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his classic work called Life and Community. And and I read these words again. But God, he says, has placed His Word, this Word, into the mouth of men that, we, that it may be communicated to other men. When one person is struck by the word, he speaks it to others. Let me, let me stop there. When one person is struck by the word, he ought to speak it to others. She ought to speak it to others. In community, it not only happens, but perhaps it is an obligation of ours. When God speaks truth into our life, we ought to share it. You don't have to be the primary proclaimer of the truth. You don't have to wag your finger. You don't have to preach at people. Just share the word that God has given you. You have no idea what it might mean to another. Even if you didn't direct it to the other, they only heard it in the context of a larger group, God speaks through the other. Don't forget to do it yourself. God has willed, Bonhoeffer goes on to say, that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother in the mouth of a man. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again. He becomes uncertain. That's you and me. When we become uncertain, we need that other brother again and again. Because when he becomes uncertain and discouraged, for by himself he cannot help himself without belying the truth. Self-deception goes deep. He needs his brother, a man, as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's heart is sure. My friends, haven't you been there before? I hope you have. It's a wonderfully helpless, divine place to be, when your heart is weak and your faith is like a flickering flame and the heart of Christ in another brother is certain and confident and bold and he speaks into your life she says, my friend I have a word for you as we go forward into this new year We ought to live life in community anticipating that God will speak through another. The second thing I see uh, in this story is this. We ought not always to listen for God to speak in another. Very important. But we ought also not put God in a box. See, if you were reading the Old Testament from Genesis straight up through this story, you could have never in expected this occurrence. You never would have expected a woman out of nowhere named Deborah, who has virtually no history, to be the leader, spiritual and judicial leader of all the people of Israel. You just wouldn't have expected it. Why? Because you got Aaron, you got Moses, you got Joshua, you got Abraham, you got Isaac, you got Jacob. The list goes on, and they're all men. And then there's Deborah. Because God does what God wants to do, and He smashes our paradigms. And if we keep God in the box, He'll be a little itty bitty God one of our own creation. So this story tells us don't keep God in the box. He's going to work His ways in unexpected ways. Maybe we should expect the unexpected from God. Once again, I quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer in that same book where he suggests that God speaks and acts through another in ways that just mess up our paradigm, we look at it and say, that couldn't possibly be God. First, he couldn't speak through that person because he's not equipped for it. She's not the image of God. And by the way, they irritate me. Bonhoeffer says, no. I want you to remember something. God does not will that I should fashion the other person according to the image that seems good to me. That is my own image. Rather, in His very freedom from me, God has made this person in His image, not mine. I can never know beforehand how God's image should appear in others. The image always manifests a completely new and unique Form that comes solely from God's free and sovereign creation. Can I just insert a little theology, just real quick? Sometimes our doctrine of sovereignty, how God works, is its own human construction. And we put God, the sovereignty of God, in a box. Or let me place it with other words like this. We need to remind ourselves that the sovereignty of God is the absolute freedom of God. God will do whatever God chooses. And he might really surprise you. Bonhoeffer goes on to say this, to me, that sight, that person, may seem strange and even ungodly. That person who's speaking into your life might seem strange and even ungodly, but God creates every man in the likeness of his son, the crucified one. When I read this sentence for the 50th time, at the end of the paragraph, I got goosebumps. He creates everyone in the likeness of his son, the crucified one. And then he says, after all, after all, even that image, the crucified one, even that image certainly looked strange and ungodly to me before I grasped it. Even that image, God in the manger, even that image, God on the cross, even that image seemed absolutely abhorrent to me. It couldn't be God until I grasped it. So my friends, Bonhoeffer says, God speaks to you in a variety of ways. Don't put him in a box. He speaks to you through people that you have no idea are speaking from God until you listen with the eyes and the ears of faith. So our lessons from this story are these, listen, for the word of God in another. What a blessing it is it takes it out of our hands. The second lesson is don't put God in the box because he's going to mess up your paradigm. Let him speak. The third lesson, it's really simple. When God speaks, be willing to follow. You know what? We give Barak a hard time. I gave him a hard time. Yeah, he said, I'll do it if you go with me, Deborah. Deborah. But at the end of the day, he followed. When God called, he followed. When 900 chariots of Sisera bore down on the foot soldiers of Israel who had no chariots, he followed. When he felt like he wasn't the leader, still, he followed. That's a word for us. When you feel absolutely incapable of doing what God called you to do, follow anyway. When you're called through the voice of another to do something that you think is outside your area of influence, and it's from God, follow anyway. When the obstacle seems like a mountain, follow anyway. Because that's what you're called to do. Follow God. Listen for his voice at another. Don't put him in a box. And when the word comes, follow. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this wonderful story. What an incredible story demonstration of your uncanny, unpredictable, delightful, grace-filled presence. You do things in ways that we could not predict. You use people that we might not expect. And at the end of the day, you tell us, well, to expect the unexpected and to follow, because you're God and we are not. So in this new year, Lord, as we face it, give us the courage, and it will take courage, to drop our predispositions about other people, especially when they irritate us, and listen for the word of God in the mouth of another. Help us not to place you in a box, Lord, because you work in unusual, mysterious ways, and give us the grace to follow, because that's what we're called to do. These things we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.